hello and welcome to The Medical Take. I'm Ariane Laws, a consultant rheumatologist and physician uh, working in Paisley. Uh, my name is Daniel Liner. I'm an acute medicine trainee from the west of Scotland. And today we are talking about frailty and we are joined by... Hi everyone, I'm Jenny Burton. I'm a registrar in geriatric and internal medicine based in the west of Scotland. Um, and I spend half of my time doing research uh, with a particular focus on care homes and evidence in older people. So today, we've been very lucky uh, with Jenny joining us today. We're going to talk about frailty, which I think is only grows more relevant um, with each passing year. We're seeing a lot of it in our uh, medical takes, huh, in the acute medicine setting. We're seeing it in clinic, and I think it affects almost all of our patients under the, the kind of general medicine um, take. So I'm going to hand over to Jenny just now to tell us, just introduce frailty, really, and tell us a little bit about it. Okay, so... I guess frailty is one of these terms that's been used for a while. Uh, sometimes we think we know it when we see it. Uh, sometimes it's used a bit imprecisely and sometimes it's used as a kind of end of the bed look. But the kind of official definition of frailty is that it's it's a vulnerability to poor resolu resolution of homeostasis after a stressor event as a consequence of cumulative decline in many physiological systems during a lifetime. That's not very usable, operationalizable in <laughs> the words, I'm going to be honest. Catchy. I say, I say that all the time. <laughs> I guess the key thing it's trying to get to is the idea that frailty is not about just being old. It's not about uh, having multimorbidity because you can have lots of multiple conditions and be living really well. But it's about that vulnerability state um, that in particular means that you're very vulnerable to a minor stressor causing a major change in your health status and that's what we see at the front door of the hospital we see something minor like a change in medication a simple infection constipation even resulting in people having what looks on the face of it like a catastrophic change in their ability to manage their everyday lives however the good news is there's lots of things that we can do about it and I'm hoping that in our discussions today we can cover how we demystify that take it out of the black box of being too hard and give you some really practical things that we can all start doing, even though not everyone is going to be a frailty specialist. Yeah, and I think it's a very important thing to have a grounding in, isn't it? Absolutely. So where are we going to start? So I guess the first thing to get out of the way, so I've already alluded to the fact that it's not just about being old. Um, and I guess this is an opportunity to, to sort of highlight that, yes, younger people can certainly be frail. Um, and one of the key things people ask us is, is who should be looking after people with frailty in the hospital. Mm -hmm. So I'm a geriatrician. I'm also trained in internal medicine. I would argue that the, the kind of crossover reflects the fact that this is core business for the NHS. But the key things to know about younger people with frailty, so work that was done by um, a colleague in the University of Glasgow, Peter Hanlon, using the Biobank resource, found that young, younger people's frailty, it does exist, it's much less common, but it's very strongly associated with that multimorbidity, but also with deprivation mm -hmm. and also with some of the really big single organ conditions like MS, COPD, diabetes and connective tissue disorders. We know that lots of renal patients are very frail, like it's out there, it's very much in everyone else's clinics um, and the key thing is about how we start incorporating the recognition of frailty into our kind of measurement scores and approaches so that we can quantify it and think about it and use it as part of our planning. 
But I would still argue that younger people with frailty benefit from the expertise of those specialists. And we would be doing a disservice to think that we're the only people in the hospital who can be holistic. And we're the only people in the hospital who can work within teams because actually other people can do that and do that really, really well. Um, And you see that from the reviews that other people who've had some training and some exposure and are less afraid of frailty can do. Where do you start sort of assessing? Because you see lots of stuff about clinical frailty scores and things like that and giving people a number out of seven, which seems very, you know, hold a bit of paper with the uh, score on it. The angry face and the smiling face. And trying to figure out which of the uh, things they make up to, I presume it is uh, not quite so simple. Well, I guess, so frailty has been a bit bogged down over the years in people in the academic world getting very torn up on how you measure it and how you count it and writing lots of papers. And actually, we've made some progress recently with things like the clinical frailty scale, so the Rockwood pictures, in terms of that being a more accessible way to assess people. But you're right, it's not about the number, it's about engaging in that discussion. And the really common thing that everyone gets wrong is the day that you are really unwell and have your COVID and your broken arm, you look terrible, we would. You are actually Mm -hmm. assessing how someone was functioning two weeks earlier Mm -hmm. and that's the really critical thing. So acute illness makes all of us defunction. Um, So when you're trying to assess clinical frailty scale, you want that two weeks ago, how were you managing? What were you able to do? And your scale then is your one to eight within the kind of nine terminally ill category. And interestingly, the Canadian group that developed it have recently made a flow diagram to try and help less experienced raters in using it. Key thing, though, it's only validated for older people. Um, And we find this in the pandemic. It also has to make sure that you're not considering people with lifelong complex disability associated particularly with learning disabilities and things like that where it's not the same kind of pattern that you're judging and that was where some of the issues came with it being used with kind of all ages Mm -hmm. so it's only validated for older people um, but it can be useful in terms of of you kind of saying right these people are at the more frail end of the spectrum or actually this person's really fit and they should be going forward for x and y intervention so it's helpful but it's it's kind of within its context the same way you're saying that younger people can be frail also older people can be very fit Uh, and we're very lucky that to see quite you know quite fit older people in the hospital it's always a joy and i suppose your scoring system will help identify them as well as maybe not needing that specialist input from the the kind of care the ugly service geriatric services that can be saved for those that really need it absolutely and i guess it's the other thing so in people working in Glasgow and in other areas of Scotland, the Health Improvement Scotland tool that was developed was, I guess, kind of much simpler, but it has a whole series of caveats of, but if you need another specialty, if you're having a stroke, if you have a fracture, if you have a GI bleed, older people living with frailty may still need specialist services and having frailty shouldn't deny them access to those sort of either. So I think it's, it's yes, it's putting it in context, working out where to prioritise and focus and who ideally needs to be supported by frailty services and who has other priorities or actually can be managed perfectly well within general medicine and is expected to make a kind of speedy recovery. Mm-hmm. I guess the other thing to say is the population we see in hospital is a very skewed population of older people. Yeah. Older people in the community are living their lives, looking after their grandchildren. Some of them are still working. And the people that we see in hospital of a comparable age are, are usually very different. And so it's just, I guess, to remember that 
there, there's a lot more going on out there than what we see at the front door. I, I remember one of my first um, jobs in kind of care of the elderly and I'd done about a three month stint and then a bunch of on calls and just being bowled over one day by seeing all these very fit people, older people on the high street and trying to like, oh, oh, oh God, they exist. <laughs> a lot of very fit older people out there. But as you say, not often who we see. We've talked a lot about how, about frailty, we've defined it. Where do we go from there? You know, you're talking about getting a history from the patient about how they have been in the last couple of weeks or sort of that collateral history. What sort of assessments and things are we talking about doing here? So I guess the first thing is that recognition. So um, you're probably not going to start off by doing a clinical frailty scale. You're going to listen to your patient and or their carers and say, well, what have they come in with? And one of the things that often catches people out is that this group of people kind of get labelled as having non-specific presentations, which are in fact really specific to older adults. And that is things like delirium, falls, new incontinence, being off their legs, sort of adverse effects of polypharmacy. These things can be as signs of other illnesses. So in the most recent two years, the commonest presenting symptom of COVID for me has been delirium without a, without a shout. And every single variant, every single wave, that's been something that's been really high as an index of suspicion for us. But it's also the case that older people present atypically with flu and other viral illnesses with their pneumonias. They may, they're not going to come along with their cough, fever and green spit and make it easy for you. They've had a fall, they've been more confused and it's then over, I guess, to us to do the detective work, to do that systematic assessment, holistic assessment and start with start with the health and functioning bits, start with the things you would do with any other patient in trying to gather information. Obviously, one of the things that can be challenging is that delirium is a really big issue and even more commonly in those who are already living with a diagnosis of dementia. And that can lead to people going, oh gosh, I don't really know what to do. I haven't got any history. I don't really know why they're here. And you get then a kind of closure of thinking. I guess what I would say is there's loads of sources of information. So that paramedic sheet, the GP referral, the the referral on track care if they've come through and already seen a healthcare professional, what were people concerned about? What, what was the thing that triggered this? What were the observations and assessments at that time? And how has that evolved? So yes, the person may not be able to give you your point-to-point kind of history of their chest pain. <laughs> Where is the pain? But, is it going? Yeah. But there, there's so much other um, yeah. other sources, as you say. And I think, especially when things are so busy, especially when we're short-staffed, the temptation is to do that kind of thought closure to end the investigation. And I think it is it's just, it just is quite important to do that bit of extra searching, isn't it? Yeah, and it can be really simple things. So people living in care homes often come with a sheet from the care home where the member of staff who was with them when they were unwell writes down what's going on, what they're worried about, what they're concerned about. Even sometimes things like, we're just worried there's a fracture. Tell us there's no fracture and we'll have them back. And these bits of detective work and picking up the phone can save so much time, not just for you, but for that patient, because you then are trying to align, well, what are the goals of this assessment? What are the people who are worried about them worried about? What do I need to be worried about? And kind of how do we kind of match these things what's, together? What's the question here? Yeah. 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 And sometimes what's new, particularly if you've got somebody who has dementia and you're trying to figure out, are they more confused than normal? Is this what they are normally like, trying to pick apart new yeah. bits from old bits from... And- 
is it worth saying here? I think um, reading one of one of the papers that we talked about um, before recording that the acute medical unit is not a wonderful place for older people. No, it's not, and I think uh, we can all sort of uh, acknowledge that. And it's it's quite interesting because I have an interest in delirium prevention yeah. and all the aspects, the most evidence based aspects of delirium prevention are the non-pharmacological things about keeping people orientated, keeping them oxygenated, fed, watered, stimulated, aware of the time and familiar things around about them. And whenever I talk about that, people go, well, that's fine, but look at where I work. That's the opposite (laughs) of my workplace. You could almost argue that my workplace is delirium inducing. Absolutely. And I think the ED colleagues, particularly with the long waits, are are finding that and having Mm -hmm. the burden of that and the stress that that's causing. I think, I guess I would turn it around into what can we do? So we can do things like we can put the lights on when we're going to see someone so that we properly examine them. We can unwrap them so that we can actually check them over and see what's going on. We can make sure that if they've got hearing aids in a box that have been safely stashed away by carers, that we pop them in to talk to them in the early hours of the morning, that we do all the things that we can to help involve them and that we then do our bits of digging on the computer to find out additional information. But there are things that we can do to make that assessment more meaningful and more involved and be as comprehensive as we can to look for injuries, look for sore bits, look for bruising, look for the, look for the pressure ulcer that's causing the CRP, mm-hmm. not something yeah. else. Yeah, it's hiding on their back where you didn't look. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, I think we've all had times, I've had times where I've been told someone's confused before mm-hmm. and they're like, no, they're just very deaf. Um, yes. And I've either found the hearing aid or shouted uh-huh. and you know looked in their ears found the impacted wax <laughs> etc and then actually we jimmy is actually quite able to be involved in this care yeah absolutely and sort of similarly making sure we're engaging with people making sure we're assessing that they are the person to be involved instead of i guess sometimes there's a bit of paternalism of we default to people's relatives and while mm-hmm. we have a duty to involve carers if they're carers and clearly we want everyone on side we do have a responsibility to treat the person that we're looking after. And the, a lot of the things about what matters to me, what's important is about establishing that from the person and making sure that they are as involved and prioritising decisions. And we're not just treating them because they're 80. It must be down to their children to decide or they're somebody else in the family um, because actually we want these goals to try and come together. And I, you know, I, I've been guilt, as guilty of that as anyone else. I've, I've caught myself before almost positioning my body more towards the family while this older person's to my left in the bed, do you know? And I, I do have, sometimes have to cognitively check myself and take that step back. So I'm involving the whole room in, in the conversation, trying to centre them. And, 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 the and, and I guess it is hard because sometimes people are doing a phenomenal amount to support that person. And sometimes in a hospital admission is a time of crisis and expression of, of the strain and the difficulty but take that person away. I know there isn't a lot of space, but there's always somewhere to take them away from the bedside to talk to them, to establish their concerns. So they're not having to stand at the end of the bed talking about someone they love deeply, but telling you how difficult it is. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Because you want these relationships to be preserved and, and all the rest of it. And so you, you want to hear those perspectives. And this is an opportunity to check and make sure people are getting the right support. But just try and, I guess, be thoughtful of of how it would feel if someone that you loved was standing at the end of the bed talking about looking after you and what we can do to make things a wee bit easier for people. 
So, so with that in mind, um, shall we focus in on, uh, you're telling us about some of these clinical syndromes that our older patients can present with. So we focus in on those a little bit. Yeah, so I guess the, the probably the commonest one and the one that people find most difficult to approach is a confusion. This patient's more confused than normal. Um, and I guess we've made a lot of progress on this even since I qualified in that we have a really good screening test that is now included in national guidelines in the form of the 4AT or the 4As test, which is quick to do, can be done by a range of professionals and is a reliable way of identifying those who have a cognitive impairment. It doesn't make the diagnosis for you. Um, you need to do a wee bit more work, but it's got your um, test of attention, so your uh, serial sevens or world backwards. It's got your 4AT, which we know from research done in Glasgow is as valid as the 10-point version, so nice and speedy. Again, often done at triage, a really, really helpful test. The... Um, alertness so is the person able to engage are they falling asleep as you come to see them which is not normal behavior uh although uh happens to me very commonly on my wardrobe (laughs) you don't take that personally (laughs) i've learned not to and then the last one the acute and fluctuating course now that's the one that sometimes is difficult to pin down and often in an acute setting we will lean towards that well let's assume it's new until we know otherwise But that test is then really good at marking out those people who are likely to have a delirium, a dementia, or possibly both together. And the reason that that's important is because we want to recognise this so that then we start doing that detective work to go, well, why have they got delirium? What's happened? What's changed? And what can we do about it? Because we know it's associated with lots of adverse outcomes. We know it's very underdiagnosed. We don't call it what it is, even though it's a diagnosis. And we need to get better at at naming it like we name acute coronary syndromes, like we name acute kidney injury. It is your acute brain failure Mm -hmm. and it is a sign that you are not well. Now, we know that people who are more vulnerable, so have more vulnerable brains, it takes a much lesser stressor to give you delirium. Right the way through to any one of us young, fit, healthy people could get a delirium if we were sufficiently unwell, often seen in an intensive care context. But delirium is absolutely something for everyone. It can come along with any acute medical condition and it needs to be something that we are all upskilling in terms of the management of and particularly the idea that it can outlast the problem. So it doesn't go away the day your CRP is better. It can take time and that's something that we probably find hard on the wards and a lot of our referrals are not better yet. And there's a lot of work, therefore, to do with patients and their families on the kind of reassurance support as we're kind of moving through that phase. Um, And I guess the other thing to say is the distress that some people can experience with delirium often they can remember after they recover. So it's hard. We're all really stretched and pressured. And sometimes it can be quite scary, the changes in behaviour that people experience it's really terrifying for their relatives. They really, really worry. But the thing I would say is we can all be kind to people at all times. The change can happen so, so quickly. It can be so dramatic. But there's a huge role for us to being kind and supportive, being understanding, not assuming that this is some horrible old lady or old man. This is someone who is acutely unwell 
And the fact that they are behaving in the way that they are is, is a sign, just the same way that not passing any urine and having a creatinine of 800 is. We would do something about that and we wouldn't get cross and upset about that. But it can be hard for staff, in particular the nursing staff, looking after patients with delirium. And it's important that we as medical people make sure we're constantly reminding people that this is an acute, potentially reversible change in condition that we need to do something about to support and try and be as kind and as supportive as we can and actively look for those distressing symptoms. Um, Because, as I say, those who've been able to articulate it after the fact can recall a lot of how their hospital care was managed. So there's a lot for us to do to support people. And I can see how it can be frustrating for medical and nursing staff as well when, you know, you're stretched, there's only sort of two of you on the floor and... Mrs. Bloggs is wandering around throwing uh, jugs of water around the place again. You've got to tidy it up again and take her back to her bed again. But it's always about, you know, it's not something that people are doing intentionally. And the other thing that you said that um, I always think is really important, and I think we probably miss more, is the not the Mrs. Bloggs running around throwing things and talking to the wallpaper, but the sleepy person who just hasn't really woken up today and hasn't really been up all night overnight and we just miss those hyperactive delirium patients and just assume they're having a nice wee rest no, and actually jimmy's jimmy's oh, he's been quite tired today yeah 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 i'm always a bit jealous but uh... <laughs> absolutely and i think that that sleepy hypoactive presentation we know to be particularly associated with mortality and poor outcomes Some of that we can ameliorate, so some of that is about trying to keep people in routines, trying to get them out of bed where we can, trying to encourage them into routines of meals, trying to stop them sleeping all day and being awake all night, um, and doing so by stimulating them, giving them things to do, encouraging them, and and as I say, trying to keep those normal routines, because once they're lost, they're very, very difficult. And as you say, it's kind of going the extra mile of, you know, these patients are feeling very unwell. They feel as unwell, if not more so than you or I, when we're not well. And the last thing they actually want to do is be up in their chair. They would much prefer to be in bed, as I'm sure we all would, but it's about establishing why these things are important. And we know that if we, if that patient does lie in bed in all day, they'll turn day into night. And before we know it, they've got horrendous delirium. And I think involving people who are important to them, if they are able to, and that is really, really helpful, particularly in terms of those familiarisations, keeping routines, There are also some really good resources for families about delirium and what it means and kind of some reassuring things produced by uh, the SIGN group who do the Scottish Intercollegiate Guidelines Network. And there are lots of resources and leaflets out there. And I would encourage this is something that we can be better at, at communicating with people about and reassuring them that this doesn't mean it's forever. Um, And that it's about time and taking that time to help things recover if if possible and as much as some families do understand it and I've been there before and say mum gets like this when she's not well as you say I think there's a lot of families who are oh my god my dad's never been like this and as you say I think we're talking earlier about making things um, explicit giving things a name Uh, I think families can find that very reassuring to know that we expect this we see this uh, here's what it is here's some information yeah. and that thing about it lasting beyond the sort of thing I remember being amazed as an old age psychiatry FY2 um, when my supervisor said to me that it can last up to six months beyond the actual acute event I realized obviously it didn't immediately go away like the minute the CRP falls but I hadn't realized quite 
how long it can persist. And there is now emerging evidence both about persistent delirium and about recurrent delirium. And we know that these people who are in very frequently with recurrent episodes of delirium, they are more likely to develop a long-term cognitive impairment, a dementia process. But we're still trying to work out kind of all those relationships. There's so much research going on in this area to guide us that then can help us give people much better information. But in the moment with that person, just be kind, be thoughtful, imagine that they are a member of your family. How would you want them to be spoken to, treated to, looked after? And what can we do to try and make things a bit better as part of the whole team? I suppose the other one that I really recognise a lot from people at the front door is, apart from the lady, was falls. Um, and the question often is, not they yeah, sure, they've fallen, making sure they've not hurt themselves, giving them a thorough assessment from that point of view. I think what's often missed is why have they fallen? Yeah, and I absolutely think that the why is important. So we want to look for kind of risk factors for falls, of which there are many, many, um, and kind of work out the kind of predisposing why have they fallen and why have they fallen today. And then the next step of that is then taking it to what can we do to reduce that risk and what can we then do to prevent the complications of further falls? Because we know that people who fall are still likely and at more risk of falling in the future. I guess so just taking you back, so you say, well, we're going to check, make sure they're not injured. I guess this is just a moment to highlight the fact that falls from standing height are a significant core cause of what is now termed, because it's at the trendy end of medicine, <laughs> silver trauma. And it's really just to be aware that. that older people are actually, in the audits that are done, actually at very significant risk of trauma from a very simple thing like falling from just standing. And those sorts of injuries are consistently under-triaged, under-recognised and under-investigated. There is progress and improvement in this area, but I guess it's just everyone to keep on their radar that there are people who turn up with flail segments to their chests, with traumatic head injuries, with multiple broken bones around their pelvis who have had what sounds to the face of the rest of us like quite a simple Relatively innocuous. And so it's, I guess it's just really that bit about identifying a source of injury is really important and having a a relatively low threshold for appropriate imaging of of parts. Particular one for me is always pelvises. Mm -hmm. Uh, It doesn't really seem to take much to break your pelvis, but it's really, really painful And the difference it makes in identifying that is about, I guess, our confidence managing it. So I am more confident giving someone opiate analgesia and encouraging them to work with physio if I know that there's a recoverable, like there's a fracture, that's why it's so sore. But we know that if we can manage that and get you moving, you will get better sooner. When we don't recognise that and people sit in pain and they don't get good painkillers or they get some dihydrocodine, some cocodamol and a wee bit of orimorph, a few days later, they've got constipation, retention, possibly even some pressure damage. Delirium. Delirium. <laughs> and their recovery is much, much slower. So, yeah, it's they're not going to have operations to pin them back together. I get that. But actually recognising that there's been an acute fracture is really important in someone's trajectory. And also then in us having the confidence in terms of how to manage things compared to, no, you're just really sore because everything's a bit sore because you've got away and we know that in osteoarthritis there isn't the evidence for that strong analgesia and we're doing people harm 
So it's it's really quite important to make make that diagnosis. And I suppose even easier to miss these things in the hyper or hypoactive delirious patient. Absolutely. Uh, the patient who keep again going back to the water jugs that are being flung <laughs> a couple of days later when things have set even set a little nurses say do you know they've not been moving their wrists very much and actually they're quite sore when we're changing them this morning and you see the wrist fracture that's been there for, for three days. And also always good to revisit things. I've got a perfect example of somebody who had fallen from standing to prove your point, had had the pelvis x-rayed because they weren't moving one leg, etc. Um, then got left for a few days because there was no fracture on this but still physio could not get this patient out of bed, yelled every time they moved and eventually got a CT scan of the pelvis and the hips themselves are fine, but they had snapped off their iliac crest and it, it wasn't visible on the, yeah. on the plane film. Yeah. So actually revisiting diagnoses um, to make sure that you haven't missed something or it hasn't shown up on previous tests. Yes. And knowing the limitations of the tests you've done. Yeah. Um, and I guess that's kind of inevitably brought us on to the topic of, of medicines uh, because <laughs> I've, I've touched there on, on some of the things that we have more or less confidence. So we know that a simple thing like starting on a new medication can be enough to cause a decompensation in someone's function and bring them into hospital. Um, I guess one of the key things and one of the things that is very doable in the medical unit is that really, really good drug history. And by that, I don't mean just printing out the list or taking the little sheet of what they say they take. It's sitting down with the person and if they aren't giving their own medicines, their carers, and going, right, well, what do they actually take? Because the number of people who are not taking their diuretics in particular as prescribed or who take certain things on certain days based on what they're up to. And we can do a lot of harm by putting people on medicines that they haven't taken for Six months. months, years. <laughs> and that they have discontinued themselves having recognised adverse effects. So you want a really, really good history of what they take, how they take it, when they take it, and if it looks anything like what we think. The next thing is then thinking, right, well, they're likely to be on lots of drugs. We know that polypharmacy is kind of anything more than five, but some polypharmacy is good for you. So if you have your heart failure, you want to be on the disease-modifying medication. So... We are not zealots against medications. The issue is the kind of combinations of things and looking at what's useful and valuable for that person and looking at the things that have maybe crept on and never gone away. So really common one is people seem to hang about with prochlorperazine and things that they got prescribed a few years ago for dizziness and they're still on. Quinine. Absolutely. Quinine for their leg cramps their antihistamine that maybe was started during a hospital stay or or something else that they've kind of just kept on getting. Then we get into, I guess, the more difficult medicines. Um, so lots of people on sort of hypnotic sedatives, these kind of things. We know that there isn't good evidence of them in the long run. We know they cause more risk of falls, more risk of delirium. But you do need to enter into a discussion with people about changing these things. Because you crossing it off on the drug chart on the electronic prescribing does not mean they're not going to take it when they leave, especially not if they don't buy into why you're stopping it. So you need to have a dialogue and discussion. You also sometimes have to be quite careful with things like diazepami, temazepami type drugs that people have been on for a long time. I've seen some really bad delirium from that just being mm -hmm. stopped suddenly. So yeah, we don't like it, but we have to find a way of, of bringing that down gradually. Similarly, antidepressants really avoid stopping them acutely. 
unless there is absolutely no other cause and seeking specialist input. Often gets done, I don't want to say thoughtlessly, but you know, without perhaps the due thought that it uh, it's owed, especially if the sodium's a few points lower than it should be and, and things like that. So I think we do have to think about these things, don't we? So the other thing, obviously, that's an emerging area is around the anticholinergic burden associated with drugs and how that impacts on your cognition. I guess big ones for us are some of the medicines used for incontinence, some of which are better or worse than others, many of which are not effective at the time that we're seeing people. And so, again, it's having a conversation. So I always try to make sure I'm involving the person or their carers, if if not able to, about why we've made these changes, because otherwise there's just no point. But it's about kind of coming to a list of, well, these are the things that we think are maybe causing more harm than good. Can we work away? Can we chip away at them? If you're going to be in for a while, we've got time to do it gradually. If this is a short stay, it's kind of prioritising, but you have to do it together. And I suppose it's so important to also document these things um, because, you know, it wouldn't be the first person who has just assumed these things have been stopped because they were in hospital and they get added straight back onto the discharge letter. And it's, I suppose, documenting, you know, mm-hmm. so many times, like, oh, why was that stopped? And you, you go through the notes and you don't find a good reason. Um, so, yeah, just make sure to be working with our pharmacy colleagues and documenting these And things. if we stop things because blood pressures were low, saying how low and therefore making sure there's a kind of clear, this is why we did this particularly if you've done your lying standing blood pressures to check for that person that had fallen over like making sure that we're giving that label diagnosis of postural hypotension so people know what we're up to and as you say these changes aren't just assumed to be because we forgot the other thing is there are again now really good scottish national polypharmacy guidelines and there's a greater glasgow and clyde guideline for people living with frailty that's got more of the evidence base summarized around why you might think about changing your targets for certain medicines or how long you've got to live to have benefit from a statin or bisphosphonate and these kind of things and I think that can be quite helpful to bring not everyone wants the numbers but you're not just stopping things because people are getting older you've got a good sound evidence base to make your decision. I do love an 101 year old on a statin (laughs) that's optimism where it's. (laughs) Equally I've looked after people who have had multiple you know uh, postural hypotension induced falls um and the you know the, the targets keep being aggressively chased around april gets put up and up and up and it's like sure they might live forever with because of the benefits from the ramapril but they'll do it from a lying position and they won't be able to stand up so let's <laughs> let's try and balance things and give people a bit of a quality of life yeah and searching for why things were started and making sure we aren't still giving things for primary prevention that we now know there's no evidence for but equally those people with uh, impaired LV function will hang on a minute they do have benefit from some of these drugs so yeah. let's let's not get carried away let's let's look at what the indication was and then come to a sensible management plan so that we're not dismissing evidence where it exists but equally people's priorities as you say change depending on their other health problems so I guess we need to get then to the thing that makes geriatricians uh, sort of sigh deeply when we see that the person admitted with new confusion had some uh, leukocytes and nitrites on their urine dip (laughs) and so now they're on some trimethoprim. So it's really hard and it's hard because I guess some of the things that we were taught and that are useful and have a place in medicine don't apply to all different populations. So I don't want us to stop dipping urine because when I'm on for medicine and I've got someone with an AKI and I want to know if they've got proteinuria and blood and need to be referred to my esteemed renal colleagues for fancy treatments that I don't understand I need to know those things 
Equally, we know back in the day we used to identify sort of significant glycosuria by dipping people's urine. And clearly in young, healthy people, in pregnant women, a urine dipstick can be really, really helpful in identifying those clinical symptoms of infection, plus some signs you send it off, you start some treatment and you try and avoid harm. But we know that the older adult population are often found to be having what we call asymptomatic bacteria, which is if you take a sample of their urine, you find bacteria in it, but are they of any clinical significance? And when I say that's common, estimates in sort of care home type populations internationally range from 15 to 40% in men and 25 to 50% of women. And it's even higher in people who have a catheter, which are essentially often colonised with bacteria. So it's, it's harder. And it's hard because the temptation is to say this person's more confused. I've got a thing. I can now do I a treatment. I can admit them. My plan is done. But what I guess we would say is, well, we want to look harder. So do they have new urinary symptoms? A big one that is sort of often overlooked or dismissed is about new incontinence. So new incontinence, really important. But there are other things as well that can make you incontinent, including are you constipated? Are you in retention? Are you struggling to pass urine and then it's kind of leaking out? And those things can be assessed clinically with your patient in receiving without too much high-tech kit. And those things are very easily treatable and sort of remediable. Infection, yes, clearly there is a role for sending urine away for culture, but we wouldn't really encourage people to treat people on the basis of a dipstick in isolation. What you want then are those clinical signs of infection and sort of either some affected inflammatory indices, some new symptoms, something to go along with that. And just making sure that people are looking just that little bit higher. So yes, I look after people with urinary sepsis a lot. I'm not saying it's not a thing. And I absolutely wouldn't want us to stop sending samples away so that we can understand the pattern of organisms. And there's nothing worse than someone who gets catheterised on admission and three days later we don't have a sample. <laughs> or they've had so much gentamicin, it's now sterile. <laughs> so as I say, we, we don't want to stop that practice and we understand where these things are in context. But it's it's one of those premature closures of thinking of, I can just say, well, this must be an infection, start them on some antibiotics and my job's done. And I guess the thing to highlight is these the antibiotics that we're commonly using for UTI are not without their own problems. I spend a lot of my time seeing people with hyperkalemia following trimethoprim and it's just to think I've also met people with sort of lung injury following courses of nitrofurin toin. So it's just to kind of encourage people that, yes, that might be part of the plan, might be part of your concern, but it's all right to say, right, I'm going to try and find more evidence to either support or refute this or another cause before I leap straight to my prescribing and, and stop thinking at that point. Can I risk the geriatric wrath? <laughs> Is there any value in doing, I know obviously I always try and get a urine sample sent off, is there any value in dipsticking urine and if it's negative, does that suggest that there isn't infection there? Yeah, so it's still still got sort of, it's useful in that context Mm -hmm. Um, and again it can encourage you if you're investigating someone who's got features of infection, CRP and white count, right okay I can sort of discount that as being my source of concern and start looking into my other systems uh, but yeah it's it's the 
I guess it's really hard because as soon as someone's got their positive dipstick, it really mm-hmm. does seem to be a very strong influencer on behaviour and practice and one that is kind of hard to shake off. Uh, mm-hmm. Some places have even banned the use of dipsticks on older people's urine because they're so worried about this. As I say, I don't support that because in my wider role, AKIs, we need to know what's going on. There are, there are these other conditions yeah. And I think we need to just do more to kind of explain it to the right groups of people. And obviously, if we're not collecting urine to dip it, we might not collect it to send. And so I think we have to just think about behaviours and patterns and how these things work uh, in departments. Because again, although older people are my core business, the emergency department's dealing with the full population. So I think you have to be quite careful about sort of knee-jerk responses. The, the thing I try and share with the juniors who rotate through medical receiving and to the nursing colleagues in our receiving areas when we, we, we when when <clears throat> when this year inevitably gets dipped that they are not the most reliable tool in over 65s living with frailty and that we have to take it as part of a larger picture Absolutely. Uh, and to, to, to fall back on the adage not everything in geriatrics is a UTI <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. vitamin t deficiency yeah. <laughs> and i guess that probably brings us on to issues about how we how we speak about older people and how we approach their care um, and again, it's really hard. Like I, I'm very passionate about looking after older people. I've had the great privilege of doing that, of spending time with them and their families, learning from them, and I find it absolutely fascinating. I think one of the things that is most challenging is when kind of other people don't look beyond the sort of older person in a bed and their attitude to approaching what's brought them into hospital. Um, and I think there's, I guess, something to be said about how we approach the population who are the core business of the acute hospital. Um, and some of that, I think, will come with the confidence of people being more exposed to geriatric medicine as a specialty, both through things like acute medicine training and through the new internal medicine curriculum. And what we hope, obviously, to do is to kind of role model what we can do and what we can contribute but I think there are issues about how older people are labelled when they present. I'm going to go out on a limb and say I see the word acopia around a lot. That's a really difficult one because I think it worries me that it is putting all the kind of blame and responsibility on the person and not really thinking about well, what has caused them to not manage to do the things that are important. I think what's also quite striking is when this has been looked at kind of systematically, people with an admission presenting complaint of acopia have a mortality of up to 22% on that hospital stay because quite often the thing that's caused them not to be able to cope is a whole spectrum and cacophony of medical problems Mm -hmm. that any one of which would affect sort of any of us and stop us being able to manage, let alone an older person with frailty who is in that vulnerable state of homeostasis that a small change causes them not to manage. I think it's it's difficult because sometimes you don't have all the answers, but what we're, I guess we're thinking is if we take a structured approach of, well, what could they do? What were they able to do previously? What's changed? What of those changes are due to uh, an acute illness, uh, a sort of uh, an injury, something that's treatable, something that might improve with, rehabilitation and further input something that we can make safer by providing sort of devices and support or equipment or care at home 
Or actually, if they're not managing and they are approaching the end of their life, what can we do to make their experience of care as supported, as dignified, as symptom-free as possible? But I would argue there's always something that we can do. No, I, I totally agree. And I think one of the reasons that it's a, it's a bad word where I'm, con- you know, where I'm concerned is it doesn't mean anything. Uh, and often there's a much, much better term. What does it mean decreased mobility? Does it mean falling? Does it mean new urinary incontinence? Does it mean carer strain? Do you know, the, these are things which, if we define the actual pathology or social issue or psychological issue, as you say, something can be done. Um, it's, it's, it's a useless term, as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, and I think these days it's very rare for what, what has used to be called a social admission to occur. The still, still gets labelled as, you know. Is maybe when a husband and wife are, the husband is caring for the wife, the husband falls and fractures, there is no one to care for his wife. And therefore, she maybe comes to hospital. I know that emergency departments and working with their colleagues elsewhere in social work are doing all that they can to try and then expedite those individuals going to be somewhere where they can get the right care. But I guess the flip side to that is these situations are quite rare, but it's a reflection of there isn't a lot of other support out there to suddenly take on someone who doesn't have someone to look after them. And the the key thing is to identify that early, to identify that they are well, they're just the collateral to something else (laughs) that happened, and to make sure that then you engage with the right people. So for us, that would be an early referral to social work and making sure we involve other people, we see are there any alternative arrangements, and if not, right, what can we do to get someone into some temporary supported care while their main carer is incapacitated? But those things are important. That person still needs help. Yeah. How do we start to tie that all together then? So I guess the first thing is that I quite often don't have a a differential diagnosis before my plan. What I have is a problem list. And that kind of helps me organise my thinking into all the issues that are relevant for that person. And then focusing my actions on, well, what am I going to do to address each of those? Now, obviously, we, we hope that as the admission progresses, we we can be more descriptive and more explanatory. So their falls are due to altered gait and balance, postural hypotension, plus recent COVID infection. But even at the beginning, just to identify those key problems. So they've got falls, they've got what we think is a delirium. We think they're cognitively usually normal or that's superimposed on a known dementia. They've got sort of low sodium that we're going to investigate. These kind of things and sort of, keeping an eye on all of those issues, including actually have they come in and we've thought, right, they're managing fine or no, there have been some concerns expressed about things at home. And I guess we do that so that then we can keep our focus as they move through the admission, not just on that immediate, is their CRP better? Have we treated the infection? But what are all those issues that we want to be addressing? And I guess, so... We hope that everyone will feel more confident looking after older people living with frailty, but clearly geriatric medicine exists for a purpose and we have wards and inpatients and across both the hospital and the community, we look after patients um, in inpatient and outpatient settings. And I guess that the thing that we do um, and that we're very proud of is comprehensive geriatric assessment 
which is probably one of our most evidence-based interventions coming from data from 29 randomised trials of over 13,500 people, we know that if we treat 33 people with comprehensive geriatric assessment, one more of them will be living living at home alive after 12 months. And that's quite an impressive number needed to treat in terms of the access that we've got to services and the evidence for what we're doing. So what do we do? Well, we work as part of multi-professional teams to undertake holistic assessments of patients across the multiple domains. But those domains are their sort of physical health, their functioning, their mobility, their cognition, their mood, their skin, their nutrition, whether they've got pain or not, their social circumstances in terms of those who are supporting them and and kind of then considering other things as they're relevant, like are there any safeguarding or adult support and protection issues? We work with these teams, which are full of highly skilled professionals who I guess all have their own roles and all contribution to make and not every older person needs to see all of them all of the time. We can draw on the expertise as and when we need it. But the the key thing is that then involving the person and those who are important to them and working out what their goals are and what's important to them and trying to tailor our approach to what they need. Increasingly, there's a focus on what do we need to get them home because we know that long stays in hospital can be very harmful for people. And sometimes that includes us thinking, well, what do we need to get them home And then what do we need to put in place when they get home to continue and sort of maintain their recovery, recognising that the acute hospital isn't always the place to achieve that. And excitingly, we've also got increasing numbers of community services like Hospital at Home who are trying to sort of bypass the stay in the acute hospital bit, reduce the risk factors that that brings and look after people in their own home, be that their own sort of dwelling with themselves or family or in a care home setting to try to bring the care that they need to them and make sure that we are providing equitable access to people. No, absolutely. And I I think there's a the amount of people who I've seen, uh, whether I was a more junior trainee, you know, during my medical receiving block or as a a medical registrar, um, saying to people, do you know, I think we just need a couple of things done. The fastest way to make that happen is to come into hospital. And I think services like hospital at home may help us, in particular patients, to 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 kind of you know offset these disadvantages of being in hospital while still getting interventions and assessment that they that they need. And I think also to highlight that this not every older person has to go to care of the elderly or geriatric team. It actually the things you guys do are evidence based interventions. You only have a certain number of beds. So it's actually very important to highlight the patients who will benefit the most from that as well. Absolutely. And I guess to see what we can replicate in other words of the hospital. So there are highly skilled allied health professionals working across the wider team. Um, and we're really lucky now in Glasgow in that their notes are part of the kind of core record on clinical portal. They're very accessible. I guess it's just making sure that we all engage with that as being part of someone's care and not thinking that that's kind of separate because I'm only in on the the blood test and now they're ready to go. Because actually the thing that works well for us is us trying to navigate and negotiate together. So some people get better physically before they're better from a medical perspective. And sometimes it's the other way around. What we want is to try and plan based on how much longer do they need? What are their goals? 
what criteria need to be achieved in order for that person to be discharged from hospital and who needs to do what in what sequence. And that's best achieved by us meeting together, discussing people in quite rapid board rounds where we go through these issues, talk together, can prioritise. That helps the therapists prioritise who to see based on what we're doing to them medically, but also helps us to understand and then allows us to all have more informed conversations with them and their family. And I guess around that sort of mentioning conversations with them and their family, we've touched on sort of patients with cognitive impairment, patients with delirium who might be confused. I guess there's some legalities around that um, that, you know, we're all aware of. But I guess as geriatricians, you sort of deal with it even more than everybody else. Yeah. So I guess the, the kind of key thing that we're thinking about here is about people's capacity to make health and welfare decisions. Um, and that's something that's obviously very prescient in our minds, um, but in some ways should be prescient in everyone's, um, and certainly is with our, our surgical colleagues. So what you're looking to do is to assess someone's ability to understand, retain, weigh information, discuss and communicate uh, the options that they have, and express that preference. Uh, one difficulty people can run into, obviously, is those who've got communication difficulties, and it's absolutely our duty to make sure we're doing everything we can to enhance people's ability to participate. But yes, assessing capacity and recognising that it's decision-specific um, is really important. So one of the things that's often quite contentious is around um whether people are able to understand the sort of risks and benefits of treatments that they're having and their sort of in-hospital care. Um, and it's important that we know, I guess, who's under what legal auspices we're practising. So, yes, we're trying to do everything in people's best interests, but we're only going to find out what those are by engaging with the people around about them about their wishes, views and preferences. Ideally, we want to do that with the person, but if they're not able to tell us that or their judgment is impaired because of a delirium, we do need to actively go out and seek the people who are ideally their powers of attorney, but if not, their nearest relatives to try and get an idea of what's important to that person, what their wishes would be. And it's always in discussions with power of attorney, not what do you think I should do for your mum? It's what would your mum have wanted in this situation? Would she want to be having an endoscopy done to investigate the mass that we've seen on CT? Would she want X or Y to be sort of treatments for him? Would she want this blood transfusion? Would she want to stay in hospital and have six weeks of IV antibiotics or whatever it might be? Um, and I think, as I say, it's hard because we have to start with the presumption that people have capacity until we demonstrate otherwise. And I am quite comfortable writing keep capacity under review because sometimes, especially in a busy setting where we don't have those good environmental conditions and you're meeting someone, it may not be the, mo the right time to make that decision and fill in your section 47 certificate if you're working in Scotland to say what your think your thoughts are but you want to flag that for the next person coming along so that they're aware and we can then as a team try and gather more information so do they need their 4AT updated do we need to chat to their family do we need to gather more information to understand because often relatives will tell you that someone is, that we might think superficially is fine yeah. is completely different from their normal self because they're having very different conversations. So engaging, doing this together, 
is absolutely the way we want to approach it. And I, I think, as you say, keep these things can change, keep them under assessment, and that capacity is a spectrum, and that people may have the ability to make um, some decisions and, and, and not others. And I think especially to the more, a lot of people listening may be a bit more junior, um, if you're ever not sure, just ask. Let your seniors know, approach your seniors, um, and if you're not sure whether someone has capacity to make a certain decision, or just issues about capacity, powers of attorney in general, do speak up about them. Um, and often these, our junior colleagues, may be spending more time with these patients than us. And part of it is about assessment over time as well, isn't it? We've talked about how delirium changes over time, and so it's not the first time I've gone in and said, oh yeah, I think this person probably has capacity, and then they're literally talking to the open air later on in the afternoon and uh the physiotherapist's like are you sure you think they have capacity um and as well it's also about that bit on the form that says that they have to reasonably be able to recall the making of a decision as well so actually i'll often have a conversation with somebody i happily do a ward run on a monday and a friday so i see them on the monday and then on the friday i ask them if they remember what we talked about on the monday and they don't remember you (laughs) (laughs) or they do and i'm like all right no fair enough yeah, and I think that's the thing. It's, it's making sure we don't dismiss people um, too prematurely, especially if they maybe can't rhyme off day, date and time. Mm-hmm. And I guess then at the opposite, being aware that those who are more educated will have a sort of a sort of higher propensity to score better in cognitive mm-hmm. tests, but their ability to do functional tasks safely may be grossly impaired, but they have an, a better ability to compensate. So just being mindful mm-hmm. of your patient, their context, and and not kind of basing too much on numerical scores. They are useful, and particularly if you're going to look after someone over a period of time, structured cognitive assessments, I'm absolutely a fan of in terms of gathering information, but just be careful and a, a sort of test score isn't a diagnosis of, of anything. It's to give you information and help you on the journey, really. Everything in context. Yep. Yeah. My dad used to revise the answers to the, uh, <laughs> the cognitive assessment. Well, the first time I went to meet my husband's family at Christmas, um, he had got them all worried that I was going to ask them questions <laughs> because of being an academic and in geriatric medicine, and they were all revising their answers to the 418. So. Who is the Prime yeah. Minister just now? <laughs> <laughs> Always a contentious one. Always a contentious one. And I guess that kind of brings us finally to the idea that we've alluded to the fact that geriatricians can't be everywhere. Um, and the older people living with frailty are very much and they're across the medical and surgical specialties and I guess it's just to highlight that this is very much something that will touch people's practice no matter what field or area they are in but there are increasingly resources being developed about how we use this construct of frailty in a helpful way and so there's work going on with the perioperative society with anaesthetists working with geriatricians and others to say well how do we make better decisions about people who need surgery not to use that cfs as a cutoff and say you can't have but to have better conversations particularly in the elective setting about well what does this mean what are the risks what are the benefits and allowing people patients their families their carers to make better decisions with more of the information rather than getting to that post-operative phase and meeting the medical registrar who comes to say, oh, they're very confused, they're very delirious, oh, I suppose we could take them to medicine and suddenly we've got to kind of unravel things that could otherwise have been predicted. So I think there is an upskilling across the hospital 
of how we look after people with frailty and how we don't turn it into a number, but how we can kind of operationalise that variable in our decision making to allow people to make better decisions together. Um, at the end of that, I just want to say thank you so much to Jenny for joining us today. Um, is there anything, if, if this has sparked interest from people, obviously we've we've talked a lot of numbers and, and, and research, is there anything you'd want to signpost people to if they wanted to learn more? Yeah, so if I'm allowed to mention it on the Glasgow College's uh, podcast, the <laughs> Royal College of Physicians have an acute care toolkit uh, about looking after older people with frailty in the acute setting. Um, and for those who want, I guess, maybe a, a whole hospital holistic view, there's the Silver Book Edition 2, which has been produced by the British Geriatric Society and is really about quality, urgent care for older people, which I would very much recommend to anyone who's got an interest and wants to dig more into some of the topics that we've spoken about today. And we also make sure the references for those are stuck in the show notes for this to have a look at. So uh, this has been The Medical Take, a podcast from the Royal College of Physicians and Surgeons of Glasgow. Um, We would love it if you could uh, follow the uh, college on Twitter at RCPSGlasgow uh, and join us next time. So thank you very much again for listening and see you in a couple of weeks. (laughs) 